Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. The feelings were so potent and I was just kind of like, huh, what was that? What just, it was like, like you, you briefly conducted lightning, like the lightning bolt just kind of passed through your body and then you're standing in the field going, what was that? <laughs> Um, and so I think out of that curiosity, I was like, oh, let's, let's see if I can do some more. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places. And this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new. And the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. I remember seeing Saeed Jones read his poetry years ago now on stage in Brooklyn. He was reading from his first collection, Prelude to Bruise, and I didn't know him or his work at the time. And he was reading in this really big, really packed room that was full of people chatting and extra noise. But his poetry and his presence just cut across the space. And I ran home and I looked him up and I bought his collection and I've been following his work ever since. Said has gone on to write a memoir called How We Fight for Our Lives, which is a coming of age book about growing up gay and black in the South. And it's also about the death of his mother when he was in his 20s. This fall, he's put out another collection of poetry called Alive at the End of the World. It comes at the 10 year anniversary mark of his mother's death. And we talked about the way that the book explores and kind of replicates the confusion and chaos of grief, how grief seems to warp time and space. The collection also contains a series of poems invoking the voices of other artists whose losses Saeed wanted to attend to. Little Richard, Whitney Houston, Toni Morrison, and lots of others. Like all of Saeed's work, Alive at the End of the World is also about America, and particularly the America of the last few years, the political realities we are living inside and grieving inside. 
It's a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here's Saeed Jones. Last year was the 10-year anniversary of my mother's passing. Um, And so just, you know, uh, it's nothing that I'm writing about, thinking about doing, you know, at this point in my career isn't in some way colored or informed by what I've learned about grief in the last decade, you know? So it's like, even if you're not writing about it, it's, it's still kind of acting upon you. And I, I think that's pretty accurate. I, I, it would be like, it would be silly to not acknowledge that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and certainly that's a huge part of this, this new collection. Did, were you, um, did you kind of anticipate the, the 10th year before it happened? Oh, that's a good question. No, I wasn't. I don't think, I mean, you know, last, last year was such a fog, but um, no, it wasn't like, you know, like every year I, I certainly think about, I try to be thoughtful about approaching certainly Mother's Day weekend, um, Thanksgiving, uh, my mother's birthday in August, you know, like that, that sense of like, okay, like, how are you feeling? How are you actually feeling? What do you need? You know, come up with a plan. Don't just like wake up and realize it's Mother's Day and you're like at a cafe surrounded by families. You know what I mean? Um, you have to be thoughtful in that way. Um, the 10 year anniversary didn't, it didn't feel like anything barreling at me. It was more just that by last May, by the time I got to the anniversary, I was, I had a lot of momentum going for this poetry collection. And, um, and so it just, I was already kind of trying to look at, like, kind of hold up the rock and look at it from different angles, if that makes sense. Um, and so it was more about one, the, like, what it felt like to be 10 years into grieving her. And I think about it as like the afterlife of grief, to use some language from Sadia Hartman, um, in the midst of this collective experience right and and that my experience with grief is so different than what so many other people were going through you know and and so just kind of reckoning with that and then also having a you know having the distance that that affords me um to um i don't know be a little less precious <laughs> with my grief i think you see in the way i write about grief in the new book you know there's humor there's irritation. There's a messiness. Um, I think when you initially lose, you know, someone in in that very specific way, you almost feel like a victim. You know, it's like it's just like you're like I was minding my own business, and then you know some awful existential perpetrator came at me. You know, and then ten years later, I think if you're lucky, and I think I've been very lucky, I'm not a victim. I'm a human. And 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 part of being human, part of having deep relationships is that they change. And one of the ways those relationships change is that people die. You know what I mean? Like so it's almost I felt like a I guess a, like a humility, like a less like less like you'll be okay, Say. Chill out. There's a lot going on around you. Yeah. You're making me think of um okay, one more story. Mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. that very, very brief poem, uh sort of in the middle of right. the collection, uh-huh. which is about you know, you died in a decade past, and then one morning, everyone started dying. Mm-hmm. And this idea that it really made me reflect on the way that how that sort of stakes a mark in the ground where time starts to orient around that mm-hmm. moment. 
And then to realize all of a sudden, or just the experience of all of a sudden, 10 years later, a lot of a lot of people begin to have the experience of losing their mothers. Right. Um, I think that maybe the question I'm asking is how you how you looked around at that moment, mm-hmm. at sort of the moment of 10 years and realizing you had lived 10 years into an experience that now a lot of other people were having right? and put that down or process that yeah, in it writing. Was, um, I will say, you know, now I, I'm, I'm very like serene and thoughtful about it, but I'd say like at the time, you know, while I was working on the book, I was, it was a lot of whiplash. Um, it was, it was not a, a gentle realization. Um, a lot, of, and you see it stitched throughout the book, right? What actually er, er, emerges, I think, from that realization of oh, it's been ten years is is rage, and and actually outrage, which is why it's you know like it's like the grief is politicized because it was like every time I would think about it, it would it would have a different color because I once you know I remember like one time I might feel um, embarrassed and ashamed. You know, this kind of like, Saeed, how dare you? You know, you got to grieve your mother in an organic way. Um, no one told you the disease that killed her wasn't real, right? You you um, were able to spend as much time as you needed in the ICU with her. You weren't wearing like a hazmat. It wasn't an eye. Like, I just started thinking about like, you know what I mean? Like, just, just mm-hmm. like, not, and it wasn't necessarily like a just move on, but it was like, you need to be a little less precious and you need to be grateful because look at what's going on. And then, and then I would look at it again. Like I kind of come back the next moment and look at it. And, you know, you're, the thing about grief is, of course, you miss the person you, you wish they were back. And so then I would have to acknowledge that you know, my mother was a black woman um, in the state of Georgia. She worked at the Atlanta Hartsfield Airport, so she would have been really, you know, right in the center of you know very dangerous space, you know, a literal work hazard, um, and needed the money. So I know as soon as she would have been able to get back to work, she would have. And hello, she had like chronic health issues, right? That impacted her heart and her respiratory system. So I was like, oh wow, I miss her so much. And this is the first time I remember sitting in my apartment here in Columbus. And it was like, this is the first time that if I could bring her back, I wouldn't, I would not bring her back to this America as I refer to it in the book, you know? So it was like, it was, (laughs) there was like a lot going on. And I think you see over the course of the book, like there are so many colors in that, you know, um, that's why I love writing poetry collections because as opposed to like a, like a prose linear narrative, you can just, honor each of the colors almost individually and, and kind of try your best to kind of take them on, you know, in their own time. I'm stuck on what you were saying a second ago about the impulse to all of a sudden start comparing griefs that arose of saying this awful thing happened to me and continues to happen to me, which is the absence of my mother. Right. And also, na- and also I'm, I'm so shitty for not feeling grateful, mm-hmm. which is, I think something that, a lot of people feel about their various griefs. And it's something you hear a lot when people talk about whatever their grief was from the last three years, right? Um, you know, so many so many people didn't get to have what I have is, right. is some version of, a, of the sentence that comes out. And yet there is still so much to be angry about, no matter, you know, because no matter what kind of grief 
you're dealing with, it's still yours. And I'm curious to know in what way you wanted to manifest that sort of confusion of or or profusion of feeling of anger and guilt and gratitude and and all that messiness formally because it feels like in some ways like this is a a collection that is full of some new formal moves Mm -hmm. for you Mm -hmm. yeah I, i guess um i wanted to obviously like thematically the book is very interested in in chaos both in the acute moment in terms of like look around like this is just a you know there's like the mass shootings and the calamity and and the violence and the violent deceptive rhetoric like in the moment there's a lot going on but also because we are a grieving nation of grieving people um i think we have you know one of the things that i've learned is that grief distorts your relationship to time and 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 the past and the present and the future are, are you know get muddled and and even if you aren't grieving, I think that eventually you will have those kinds of experiences. But for me, that's when I kind of had my understanding of this existential <laughs> crisis. And so I wanted to formally embody the disorder and the chaos on the page in the structure of the book. You know, one of the poems kind of appears even before the book starts or um, you know, there are poems that end mid-sentence. Uh, you get to the note section when you think, okay, we're free. Said has now released us. We can all go home now. And then you kind of turn to the note section and it's like, I'm not done yet, you know, because isn't that what um, what grief and all of our, you know, our true essential crises, that's so much of what I've learned that they end up saying to us at some point, I'm not done with you yet. We still have work to do. Um, and, and what do I say in, um, date night? It's not up to me when I get to stop crying mm-hmm. and, you know, oh, that, that, yeah. that idea became, you know, obviously I like how it manifests in the poem, but I also felt like, oh, that's part of the chaos. That's part of the, you know, we're in this era, you know, especially like last, last summer when I was like, you know, starting to finish up the poems and it was like, we're back at the clubs. People are having parties again and everything. And then you might burst into tears in the restaurant for no reason. You know what I mean? It's like, you're trying to get out there and live, you're dating again and everything, but we have all of these acknowledged and unacknowledged or suppressed griefs. And um, so I, I wanted you know, and, and everything I was trying to do in the presentation of the book, whether it was like the line, the themes, the ideas, and, and you know, the order, the arrangement of the book itself, I wanted to, for the book to look kind of how we're living. And I think the site, like like in Prelude to Bruise, my first book, um, the, the main character, Boy, who's kind of my avatar throughout the book, I just kind of really envisioned him as a bullet. He's It's very linear. And he's just like a bullet, you know, flying across this this perilous American landscape, you know, very like single, like one-sided, you know, just like just going, 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 not really self-aware that 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 character, those poems, there's not a lot of self-reflection. <laughs> there's not a lot of acknowledging what's going on. He's just always just trying to run and run faster. And so this book is very different because I'm a different person, right? And and the landscape has changed and it's not like a field you can run across. It's like there's an earthquake, like the ground isn't settled. <laughs> and so you're kind of, you know, I, I just feel like such an essential part of this moment is like you have your hands out 
in front of you, you know, and you're trying to feel and touch and get your bearings, but everything just keeps changing around you, you know, and what you thought you knew and thought you could count on has really been destabilized. So even if like in Prelude to Bruce, you wanted to be that bullet just kind of running across the landscape, I don't think I feel like I can. You know what I mean? I'm just like, oh man. And so it it feels a bit like wandering through a haunted house in the middle of a storm and an earthquake at the same time. And and so I, <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted that, you know, I wanted the book to feel that way. I hope in a productive way, you know. Yeah, I mean, something that I really loved about this book is the way that the poems repeat and repeat. I mean, the poems themselves actually don't repeat, but we have several poems that are called Alive at the End of the World. And we have, you know, there there are these repetitions or we get, you know, many poems whose title is sort of grief number whatever grief number but but grief but they're all out of order right, right? grief 913 comes mm-hmm. before grief 1 and and every end of the world is sort of a different one and I, it really felt like it staged that experience of of not feeling in control of how long you stay in a psychic space or of an experience which does feel so related to grief where wherein like everything is somehow staked against an original incident right. right there is there is there is that kind of first episode that has has thrown time sideways and then after that everything is well i mean there's that one really amazing poem that is literally just sideways on the page um but it's sideways it's upside down and it's just repeating and repeating and repeating um thank you i mean i really i love repetition it was really fun to embody that yeah i like what you're saying it also just really resonated with, you know, like I, I could feel in the form of it something that I know to be true. Right. Um, and I guess the, the question that I had out of that was, did you feel like you needed to be enough, far enough outside the literal experience of that kind of grief to, to do that on the page? Yeah, yes, I think so. In, in part because, you know, my, my mom passed away towards the end of me finishing Prelude to Bruise. So if you look if you look at the book, or if I look at it, maybe only I can kind of notice, but there are poems that I wrote before she passed away where it's clear what I'm writing about is loss, which is different, right? Related, but not the same. And then in the poems after, there are a few poems about grief um, as I was like very early on, you know, beginning to experience it because I think it published Prelude to Bruise like, three three years after my mom passed away and then i wrote the memoir which is you know it's a it's the linear it's the story of what happened it is the i was minding my own business and then you know kind of blindsided and and so and so it's like that initial acute experience those first few months and and um yeah, and, and part of this was was my own um, bullshit that I had to get over. I think I'm always trying to be like, like I literally said, like, shouldn't aren't I over this yet? <laughs> like, have, haven't I done this before? You know, like the books are, you know, I think well, books, and I think generally probably any real creative enterprise that requires time, the project does take on a wisdom of its own, and it does begin to. It is a bit of a push and a pull where you're like, I don't want to write about this. I don't want to write about this again. You know, so that's part of the the relationship to repetition is I love repetition as a poetic device. Repetition in real life that feels unproductive 
drives me nuts. <laughs> right. Or that you're not in control it's of. It's <laughs> really irritating, you know, because, yeah, you feel like you're not in control. Or if you're having to repeat yourself to other people, I think one of the reasons it freaks me out is because I value communication so much. And so I'm like, am I not making sense? Am I not being heard? Like, what's going on? Like, it really kind of sends me spinning. And it was interesting with, with Alive at the End of the World, I initially did not see, I, I thought I was just writing about this collective experience. I, I didn't really see how grief and particularly like with my mother was going, because I was like, I've done this. Haven't we done this? We know, we know what there is to know. But the book, you, you kind of push and the book pulls and you keep going and you try to write something else and you can't. And then eventually you just kind of have to face facts and write the poem you actually need to write, you know, and that just happens over and over again. And then you look up and you're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> It's clear as day. And that's what, you know, and I, what was so fun with this book was that, you know, the, the concept afforded me a kind of directness. And so there is that line um, right after the poem you just mentioned that's on its side. There's that line where I say, did I just trick myself into writing another memoir, you know, <laughs> which was an honest revelation I had one morning at my desk, you know, as I was kind of looking at what unfolded. All of this is to say, once I came to terms with like, okay, clearly whether I want to, you know, write and really write into grief again, whether I want to do this work, it's happening. It's happening. So either I write all these poems and I don't show anyone or I just write them and then maybe, maybe they can connect to the broader work. Unfortunately, they do. Um, and so I think because the experience was, you know, less acute and everything, yes, it was emotional, um, in the sense that, you know, this is real, this is real stuff I'm talking about. This isn't like a fictional narrative, but it wasn't overwhelming. It wasn't like I was crying at my desk, you know what I mean? And so, yeah, I think it's really interesting to read how I write about grief and how we fight for our lives. And it's just much closer. It's a much more, it's, it is a literal younger version of myself. He has far few tools to deal with what's going on. He does not have any big ideas about grief. He mostly just has questions and reactions. And this book, um, you know, I, I think I'm writing from a slightly more stable, um, maybe a little more wise, or at least just a little bit more um, prepared to, to write about grief. Like, it's just like a little less vulnerable. That's like, or not less vulnerable. What am I trying to say? Um, Able to like look beyond myself, I think is a big difference in this book. It's kind of like you see this Saeed kind of in the in the backyard of his grief, but he's also able to kind of peek over the fence <laughs> a bit more and kind of see what's going on. And go, oh, we all have a backyard. Oh, that's interesting. It's not just me. Oh, okay, and you know when you're just really in the throes of it, it's very difficult to to kind of step out. Yeah, I mean, was that an explicit goal of yours in? in this project was to be sort of looking, looking more outward? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. One, I mean, I just think it's healthy <laughs> and important. And I think, you know, this is my, my third full length book. And so, you know, you begin to say, well, what's different? What can I do to challenge myself? And I do, I do feel that there is like a moral imperative to look beyond ourselves. I, I, I think I'm an interesting person. I think, you know, my life um, has some gems and I, I, I believe that I have things to offer based on my personal experience. Um, but I also think that that self-reflection is always going to be even more effective when it exists in concert with 
you know, the bigger picture. And so, yeah, in this book, I think you see me looking out in real time at our country and looking around and trying to connect the dots. And you see me looking at history and looking at, you know, using research um, to use really the history of, of entertainment and culture in this country to also draw some connections. Because, yeah, I think it's moral and what we should do, but also, you know, just one of the obvious facts of this cultural era that we're living through is like we we got we need more like like i i need to learn more i need to be a better version of myself every day to make it in this america i cannot be mediocre and keep living you know what i mean and so i just felt like i was i need to read up i need to read up i need to brush up even if i think i knew um a great deal about what's going on in this country i can't take that for granted because we see what happens when people do so yeah i think you see that onus manifesting in in this book in a new way I wanted to talk to you about all of these poems that are sort of for other... I don't know what the word you would use is. Would you use the word ancestors? These other sort of people who, yeah. whose losses you want to speak to in some way. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. They're, they're, I think of them as 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 ancestors, as as lodestars, people who, you know, just even, you know, when, when I wasn't writing, I mean, when I was just, you know, trying to endure lockdown or whatever, you know, I was turning to their music and, and to their creative work, to their songs, to their, I, I mean, there was a point where I felt like I damn near had Paul Mooney, like his entire race album memorized. <laughs> I was listening to that, his, his standup album, like every day at one point last year. And so I just loved, again, there's something, something I love with this book is that it's, it's very close to like how I was living at the time you know, which is not always the case with my work. And so I just loved that, like I said, like just when I have a question about like, did I just trick myself into writing a memoir? That's in the book. Like, why do I have to like hide that from the process, you know, hide that from the work? And just as I was turning to the work of people like Diane Carroll or, or Paul Mooney, just as a person, I was like, oh, I can, I can stitch that into the project. And that felt beautiful. I, I love that I got to do that. Yeah. It, it was exciting to see these other, in some of these poems you were writing, sort of in the imagined voices of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I thought that was like an exciting, sort of an exciting new thing to see in your poetry, this kind of astral projection collaboration with another voice um, and another mind. Where, what was the first one of those that you wrote? Uh, it's, it's the first poem in the series, the, um, all I got to do is stay black and die, um, which I wrote the afternoon. I have the date in the notes, but I, but I, but I wrote it the day I found out Paul Mooney died. Like it happened, like I, I, it wasn't that I like sat down and was like, I'm going to do this sequence of poems. It was just, I don't know. I was minding my own business and I got a push notification about Paul Mooney and, even though I was deep in the experience of writing about grief, obviously, I was still bowled over. I was still overwhelmed by how intense the feelings I were, had about Paul Mooney, you know? And so this poem, like, poured out of me very quickly. I think I tweeted it 
within like a couple of hours of writing it. Like it was not something I labored over very long. And the feelings were so potent. And I was just kind of like, huh, what was that? What just, it was like, 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 like you, you briefly conducted lightning, like the lightning bolt just kind of passed through your body. And then you're standing in the field going, what was that? <laughs> um, and so I think out of that curiosity, I was like, oh, let's, let's see if I can do some more. What, what can I do? And I was like, oh, what if I wrote, you know, a poem for everyone that appears in the book or in the poem, um, in the order that they appear in the poem. What a, what a great challenge <laughs> that will be. And it was, oh my gosh. <laughs> what was hard about that? Or what was challenging about that? First of all, it's a lot of poems. <laughs> yeah, like, it is. It's like, a lot I, of poems. I, you know, I generally write just one poem at a time. When I'm in it, I'm in it. I, I try not to. I think you can get um, too into the concept and the idea. And you're like, okay, this is going to be like a, a whole sequence and da-da-da-da-da. You know, the, the, the idea architecture can get really exciting. Um, Matthew Cunningham calls it like the burning cathedral in your mind. I, at times, I've gotten like a little bit ahead of myself. But then I haven't like actually written anything. <laughs> And so then when it comes time to write, like the idea and the potential kind of overwhelms the actual like sentence level writing and it just kind of collapses before you even get started. Um, so I, I, I often try to, I've learned to, I'm, I'm, I'm a little hesitant to, to think too far ahead. I'm usually just like, okay, one more story. You know, that's really my, my ethos. And then with this, this was totally the opposite. Like I came up with, you know, like this whole, and then I was like, damn, now I have to do the damn thing. And you can't stop. <laughs> you got to follow through and, and you really care about these people. And I realized how I wanted to write it was that I wanted to, you know, each, each poem about these figures ultimately was about an incident um, or a perspective at some point in their life that I didn't already know about. Um, and so, you know, some of those poems, I would read like an entire book to write a poem, you know, so it, it was a lot of research, but it was, it was really exciting too and fun. Yeah. Was there one that felt the most challenging to you in one way or another? Mm. The Paul Mooney poem was pretty tough. The Paul Mooney poem was pretty tough. It was really fun because I, you know, what I was trying to do is, is very, that, that poem's really tricky in terms of the ideas and what's, what's really animating it. And, um, I, for that, I, I, I have, uh, I had a dear friend that I really trusted and I knew would tell me the truth. And, and they, they read an early draft and we were just kind of like sending drafts and feedbacks back and forth. I think we were texting and, um, the early drafts, I wasn't being tough enough. <laughs> like the the images that I was that I was conjuring and trying to use, like they they actually weren't tough enough. And it's like this is Paul Mooney. <laughs> like this this isn't Saeed. This isn't you. This isn't how you would, you know, rhetorically kind of tackle. This is him, and he was very take no prisoners and. He was from a different generation, you know, just really, you know, it's like you, you don't want to like, I didn't want all of the poems ultimately to just sound like Saeed. I didn't want them to sound like each other. I wanted you to get a sense of like, oh, wow, this is Whitney Houston right now. This is a very tired, exhausted Whitney Houston leaving a voice message. Or this is Little Richard and he is mad as hell, you know? And so... The challenge, and then it started with the Paul Mooney poem because it was like trying to get into his voice and and his 
his use of rhetoric and structure. But the challenge was always we need to find a different occasion for all of these people so so that they're not they can't be like the same color of rage or sorrow because that will be repetitive in one way right but also they're all just very different people and so they have different you know diane carroll is going to kind of draw from different images in her life than um than than someone like luther vandross so it it took a lot of work to like your intention wasn't enough <laughs> you then really had to settle into the reality of the person you're trying to embody how much did you then have the urge to do that with your mother mm. on the page not much, not much, right? I don't think, I'm trying to think, I don't think, or at least nothing's coming to mind. I mean, tell me if you you, you have a- No, a, I was scanning back. I've been sitting here thinking, oh my God, wait, did, did that happen? Yeah, did that happen? Because really. that question sort of rose to mind. And, and, That's interesting yeah, though, that, yeah. Right, like, and if so, why not? I, I guess I yeah, wonder. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think I've always- well, you know, for the last, what, five or six years, I think I've been hyper aware of the ethos of writing about real anyone, you know, like if, if, if for whatever reason, you know, if it was just like any subject, you know, like an interview subject for a profile, and then, you know, they became a major part of my writing life, I think I would be just as protective. Writing about someone who's not here, who can't speak up for themselves, who, you know what I mean? I just think the morals of that are really deep. And and obviously, I care about my mother so much, but I just, honestly, even if I wasn't writing about my, to write in such an extensive way about another person, I just think it's really important to think about intention, you know, consequences, unintended consequences, to really try your best. And so, you know, I've always been, I've, I think I've been always been pretty disciplined. Um. Like, like in the memoir and how we fight for our lives, you notice, you know, I'm pretty sparse with dialogue. One, I think everyone in nonfiction should be sparse with dialogue because you don't remember exactly what so-and-so said to you 15 years ago. You don't, you don't, you know, but also because I, yeah, the idea of like putting words in my mother's mouth makes me deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> it just, it's too far. It's too much. Yeah. Right. Well, in a, in a way she doesn't belong to us all in the way that maybe Whitney Houston Right. Came to belong uh -huh. to the public in some way. Uh -huh. Right. And your your rendition of Whitney Houston is not going to be seen as as the authority. It is it is right. clearly a, a a sort of a, a dialogue, a riff and mm -hmm. an expression. Whereas I think. Right. Speaking with and for your mother in that way would 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 mean something else. Right. And then. Yeah. And then also, you know, with these cultural figures, and that's why the research was so important. So like in the Paul Mooney poem, um, every joke except mentioning like Chevy Chase's dick, <laughs> um, every image, you know, down to the rabbits, like every image in that poem comes from one of his stand-up sets. You know, the examples he used, every, everything, none of that is sight looking around me. Oh, wouldn't it be interesting if we include rabbits in this? No, there, he, there's a moment he's doing the stand-up and a white person in the audience gets offended and, and runs out and he's like look at him she looks like a white rabbit <laughs> run it away you know and so that was the other thing with these figures because they are also you know cultural icons 
there's a lot of research, you know, like Whitney Houston. Oh, yeah. It's you know, fact-checkable. Fact-checkable. Like Whitney Houston, you know, I, I was like watching a documentary and when the, the lines in the book where she's like, that's nothing but the devil, um, the Whitney Houston documentary opens with her saying that that's what her mom has said to her once. You know what I mean? So I'm like, no, that's literally something Whitney went on the record as saying, like, that's one of the ways her mom would kind of push back at her. And so, yeah, with them, I felt like I could always go to research as I was trying to embody their voice. And then my mom, obviously she was my mom and I knew her very well, but no, I don't think of my, and, and clearly I'm very aware that I'm an unreliable narrator. <laughs> I think that's always been evident in my work. I think that's important to accept. And so with her, it's like, t- maybe it's like too close too close to, to to really feel that I can do that in a way that one, I think would be good, two, that would be effective, and three, would be necessary. Um, because then what emerges in that absence is, well, isn't that kind of the whole point? It's grief is a strangely one-sided experience. It's not a conversation. That's why it hurts so bad, you know, is that you are overwhelmed. <laughs> it's like 10 years into this new relationship with my mother, and it's totally one-sided. It's not like she's talking to me. That's not the kind of grief I have. Yeah. And I guess the thing that I was asking was about whether or not you ever felt tempted to make her talk back to you mm. in in the poetry, in the writing. Because so much of the writing is you speaking to her. And something that's so compelling about these other poems, you know, Paul Mooney and Whitney Houston and Maya, is that they can talk back to you. Right. Or they can talk to us. Yeah. On the page. And I, can, I completely understand why you, all the reasons why you would choose not to to ask your mother to do that, right? To talk back to you in the poems. And yet it feels like it would be hard not to want that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I love, this is this line of questioning is so interesting. Yeah. I mean, one is like, I'm, I'm big on like, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> I'm, 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 I, I take the, the school of, of, you know, the hubris of wishes very seriously as someone like raised on fairy tales. I'm like, uh-uh, you do not want that. Um, but yeah, I do think, yeah, I don't know. And, and maybe I, I, again, it's like, you know, when when I set out to write How We Fight for Our Lives, I was not going to write about her passing away. The book was going to end um, basically in the previous section, like a month after the Phoenix, Arizona. So that would have been, you know, um, like my last semester of college, which is like 2008. And, you know, the book ultimately ends um, September of 2011, a few months after she passed away. And and I did not, my editor and I, we, we took that decision, you know, to open up the book and to write about that part of my relationship with her just really, really seriously. And, and to think about like what you're saying, like the, like the whole concept of, the, like, of dress thresholds, like a real significant threshold. The thing is, it's not just a door. It's not just a bit of architecture that you walk through one time and it's like, okay, you walk through it. Um, life thresholds those defining experiences and you've kind of acknowledged this already it 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 um it accrues like like the the, the dynamic deepens it builds it becomes a palimpsest and everything that happens after is informed by this threshold you've gone through and so yeah i think it's not that i like literally have like a like a 10 commandments of writing for saeed <laughs> but you're right i think it is fair to say that some decisions about how I write about her are clearly connected to 
you know, I think my respect for her. And also the other thing, it's like kind of confusing to try to imagine talking to my mother 10 years later, like as someone in my mid thirties, because that was the that wasn't my relationship with her, <laughs> if that makes sense. You know what I mean? My, my, my relationship with her was that I was in my early 20s, which is a very different kind of power dynamic. And so it's like almost at times difficult for me to even imagine hypothetically what we would talk about, if that makes sense. Right, of course. I mean, that is cycling me back to the part of the conversation where you were saying this was kind of the first moment where you wouldn't have right. wished her to be alive to have the conversations that we're having right. now uh-huh. about whatever whatever's going on kind of day to day. Oh month, my month. God, she would be so disappointed. Oh she my mom would be horrified. I think you and, and and I guess the closest maybe and 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 my mom had a very different spirit and ethos, but the Toni Morrison poem um, the sense of that Toni Morrison talked about in the interview that inspired that poem of just like feeling baffled and aghast, I think that was maybe part of what I was acknowledging that that to bring my mother back, knowing her politics, knowing her values, and to think about, you know, what's an example? What I like, you know, like what Sandy Hook was like 2012. I don't want to have to explain the Sandy Hook massacre to my mother. I don't want to have to talk to her about the Pulse nightclub shooting. I don't want to talk to her about um, the church shooting in Charleston. You know, like I literally would think about like these, these in the same way that, what's another, a positive, like uh, in the same way that um, when at the end of the Obama administration, like in on inauguration day, when um, Barack Obama and Michelle Obama were like walking towards the helicopter, like to officially leave. The, the reason I was crying so hard, it wasn't about them. It wasn't like, oh, it's the end of a political era. It's that I realized, I was like, oh, th- that's the last president my mom was alive to see. That's like the last political remnant that my mom was aware of. And so I think I in, in the years since, like, yeah, you, I just, I don't know, I have this hyper awareness of like, whew, things have really taken a turn and I wouldn't want to bring her back here because it's dangerous, but also because I do think my mother would just be so disappointed in us. Mm. Do you think you will keep writing about her or about grief for the for the foreseeable future? Um, who knows? <laughs> yeah, fair uh, enough. Who knows? Um, you know, I think the moment I say yes or no, my brain goes, "All right, we'll see." But um her I can say for now I'm creatively satisfied if that makes it you know like I, I i'm i'm at peace i'm i'm proud of the work i think um in a way the three books you can almost see prelude to bruise how we fight for our lives and alive at the end of the world almost as a trilogy you see me growing into this relationship with grief and then you see the you know the acute reflection um and then you see 10 years later and so right now at the moment i i don't think i have much more to say about that specific relationship, I think grief, you know, to think of the threshold in a different way, I would say grief has informed my sense of self and my relationship to my humanity, to all of us, you know, um, probably as deeply as my queerness, as my blackness, you know, as these, these, these parts of my identity that have just like really, they become, you know, organizing principles. Um, so so I think even if I were not to write directly about grief again, you know, it's like even if I'm not writing about 
queerness explicitly in a poem, queerness is there. Um, and I think I think grief will just always be there in a similar way. This book was a joy to write. I want people to know that it was a joy to write this book um, because of the craft, because of, uh, you know, the many small victories and then the collective victory of like finishing a book. It, 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 I'm really proud of myself um, for the work that I did, for the willingness to do it initially. I certainly did not, you know, early in the pandemic go, oh, okay, this is going to be a great, this is going to be science pandemic writing residency. You know, that is, that is <laughs> not, <laughs> that is not how I took this on. I mean, it, it was, it was very difficult. It was very difficult to want to just keep living. I felt very lost um, and, and confused. And, and I think, you know, the other thing about being 10 years um, past my mother's death. It was also like in my mid thirties. And so at a point that like statistically, I was probably always going to have some existential questions, <laughs> some life journey questions that I would need to confront, you know, during this part of my life to be in the middle of the pandemic and isolated from my friends and mentors, you know, it was really hard. Um, but, but my friends and mentors found a way to show up anyway, you know, and, and out of, out of the, life stabilization and and the support you know i was able to get to the point where i could start writing again and then i just felt so alive i just i was so i mean and like i'm not a morning person i am not a morning person jordan oh my god but i would wake up at like 4 30 in the morning five o'clock in the morning Whoa. i couldn't wait to write that's so early uh -huh. yeah because i was like i gotta get up before everybody else wakes up because y'all are just gonna annoy me you know mm, y'all not getting between me and today's poem. like i was so excited and then i was like i can go back to sleep later and i would um, but I loved it you know i would be like what's the the whitney houston poem i was cooking lunch i was cooking salmon and at the time I would use my refrigerator, like kind of like a dry erase board. And so I was like cooking and I wrote like a version of the title um, on the refrigerator as the idea was coming. I was like, that, that could be the Whitney Houston poem. And I started writing it and then I wrote like the first line and then a note for this. And I realized I was writing the whole damn poem and I just had to like pull the plug on the George Foreman grill I was using. <laughs> to cook the same. And then like ran to my desk, you know, it was, I felt. I felt and feel so alive when doing this work. And so it's like, you know, though the book, you know, it's some hard ideas and there is rage and sorrow and grief and, and disappointment, all of that's there. I won't pretend that it's not the case, but what a joy to be given the opportunity to honor those parts of our human experience, you know? And so I, I want, I want um, people to know that, that I'm, I'm happy that I've been able to give this book to y'all. Thresholds is produced by Drew Broussard. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshimud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Lorelai Grossman. Special thanks to Justin Alvarez and our hosts at LitHub Radio. You can find out more about our show, listen to past episodes, and get in touch at our website. This is thresholds.com. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. Or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you normally listen, and subscribe and review us there. Thanks. We'll see you next week. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.